Hello and welcome to Coasting Country, powered by the science of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. Coming up in this special edition all about the 113th Plant Science Day, we talk to Brian Hulbert, Commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Agriculture, about how the state's agencies work with one another. Dr. Gudas Malai gives us an update on new exotic ticks making their way into the country and Connecticut. Robert Mara provides an update on the continuing battle against beech leaf disease. And we catch up with members of the public as they have plants identified and plant diseases diagnosed. But first we catch up with Dr. Jason White, director of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station and his opening remarks at this year's Plant Science Day. The biggest challenge that, that we as a state agency and most state agencies have faced in the, in the last two to three years uh, has been what was called the silver tsunami, uh, although I'm a little silver, I haven't retired yet. Uh, but uh, most state agencies were anticipating losing between 25 and 35% of their staff to retirement over this last two or three year period, and that's exactly what happened to us. Uh, our, our general funded staff is about 70 positions, and of those we had 24 retirements. Uh, and I just have the names uh, and, and uh, listed up here, but you can see they were across our scientific support our technicians and, and uh, administration. Uh, so uh, what we've done, we've been very aggressive over the last year and a half to two years in refilling all of those positions. So of those 20, uh, 24 positions that were vacated by retirements, uh, we actually have hired 35 staff. Uh, and again, across all different categories. Now, now some of those positions were new, which I'll show you in a minute. We had three three positions from the Office of Invasive Species, Aquatic Species and three for recreational marijuana uh, that were added. But we, we essentially filled every single vacancy that was created and then added additional positions. So uh, we really hired the best and the brightest uh, and I encourage you to, to spend some time talking to, to our staff today um, to see what, what we've been working on. Uh, this is just an update on some of the things uh, that we do. Uh, we are a state agency, although our primary uh, mission is research. We also have surveillance and regulatory programs, and that's just kind of laid out here, uh, all the different things that we do separate from research. Uh, our four core areas, for those that aren't familiar, agriculture, the environment, food safety, and public health. Um, and um, as I mentioned, uh, about 70 of our positions are funded by the state, your tax dollars, but our total staff is around 110 because we receive uh, federal funding, which is what you see here. So our total agency funding is about a little over 14 million, um, but um, only, only about eight and a half million of that comes from the state of Connecticut. The rest is federal dollars that are either competitive grants that our staff go, go for or um, um, pass through funding from other agencies. Uh, so one of the things that you'll hear about uh, very shortly uh, is the adult use uh, marijuana or cannabis program. Uh, we have a, a presentation on this coming up, but I just wanted to highlight that uh, when I spoke last year, the three positions were, were open. Now the three positions are filled uh, and you can see the, the names and the pictures of the staff there. Uh, we work obviously very closely with the, the Department of Consumer Protection, uh, their drug, con drug control division on this program. Uh, and our role is as the state regulatory laboratory. 
So we don't handle any samples from growers. We handle samples that come from uh, state inspectors for a whole variety of reasons, either surveillance or complaints or audits, things like that. Uh, so as of today, uh, in, the last, in this last year, um, since July of last year, uh, we've handled about 117 different samples that have come in. Uh, and the samples are, you name it, all different varieties from vapes to plant material to, to food products. Um, so you'll hear more about that uh, in a few minutes from Anuja. Uh, one of our exhibits in the barn uh, is on our new Office of Aquatic Invasive Species. I also presented this slide last year, but again, we didn't have any positions filled. So now we have three, uh, three um, scientific staff over here. So uh, this was a, an office that was created legislatively. Uh, and uh, again, you can check out the, uh, the barn exhibit and the staff is there to, to fill you in on all the details. Uh, one other new thing that I do want to mention, I actually just added this slide last night because we just found out uh, that uh, we were awarded a CDC Center of Excellence for Vector-Borne Disease. Uh, this was a, a grant that we applied with. Cornell University is the lead institution, uh, but we're uh, one of the co-institutions, and our team here um, will, will be working very hard on this program. Uh, so it's a, it's a five-year grant for $10 million. Uh, in terms of what comes to the Ag Experiment Station, it's probably about three or three and a half million uh, to fund vector-borne disease research. Yeah, so it's very exciting. So we'll, we'll probably do a press release Friday. So you guys are getting this before the, before the press release. Uh, but you can see all the collaborators there. And, and um, you know, our vector-borne disease program comes in two, on two tracks. We have the research and we have the surveillance. Uh, but they clearly overlap, and this, this program is going to really uh, exemplify that. Uh, and there's just some more of the details, but I think I'm running short. Uh, so we've got two construction projects we're working on. Uh, our Valley Laboratory, which is up in Windsor, um, this project is just about ready to, to begin. Uh, we had to get some additional funding from the state uh, this past session, uh, and we were successful getting another $10 million because of increased costs uh, and inflation. But we now have $36 million. Uh, to, to renovate the existing building and then build a, a new laboratory facility off the back uh, that's about twice the square footage. Uh, it'll be state-of-the-art facility. I think we've got 38 geothermal wells and solar. It'll be about 80% uh, energy efficient. Uh, and uh, with any luck, um, you know, we'll, we'll be starting construction in less than a year. Uh, and then uh, in New Haven, we also have a greenhouse project that's currently out to bid. It's a $1.2 million project. Uh, that'll renovate uh, some of the greenhouses that are there. They're, they date back many, many decades uh, and are in need of renovations. In about 15 minutes, please join us in the... We're talking with uh, Brian Herbert, Commissioner of the Department of Agriculture here in Connecticut. Commissioner, thanks ever so much for the interview. Um, tell us about some of the challenges that the state faces when it comes to things like climate and, you know, and how the agencies right. are working together. Right. So um, this is a really interesting time in agriculture in our, in our state and in our nation. Right? We used to have the normal challenges and what I would give to go back to those days. Um, but we had you know, uh, 50 degree weather in February followed by minus 10 degree weather. We had a late deep frost in May. We had a cool almost drought in June and then flooding in July. Um, so these challenges are really, really difficult and farmers don't have the tools um, necessary to deal with them. And so working with partners like the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station, partners like the Yukon Extension, um, we are trying to develop the toolkit and build in these new tools that, they, that these farmers will need in order to be successful. 
One of the things that we asked for at the legislature two years ago um, was to reinvigorate the Governor's Council on Agricultural Development and recreate it as the Governor's Council on Ag Development and Innovation so that we're looking to the future and preparing the tools for that. And importantly, uh, previously, the previous iteration of the Governor's Council um, was the commissioner was the chair and the Farm Bureau and Yukon Extension were the vice chairs. We actually moved the Farm Bureau down to a regular member and invited the Connecticut Agriculture Experiment Station to be the second vice chair to show the three agencies working together to best suit and address Connecticut's challenges. Tell us a little bit about the Connecticut Agriculture Experiment Station. It is, I understand, the oldest um, agriculture right. experiment station in the country. That in itself must be wonderful to have here in the state and obviously all of the expertise that comes with it. Well, and they're great partners, and obviously we're here at Plant Science Day, lots of people, members of the public here. Um, so it demonstrates, you know, the role that they play for the general public. I mean, you talk about ticks and mosquitoes and how important that is for members of the public. But then you can walk around the experimental gardens and, and crops. And the research that they're doing to solve some of these challenges, they wouldn't happen at a Department of Agriculture. Um, that's not something that we are built uh, with our mission. And so we rely on this partnership and the farmers rely on this partnership. What we've done is we use our grant dollars to fund the Connecticut Agriculture Experiment Station to do some of this experimental work and then roll it out into production and actually out to Connecticut's farmers. How important is it for there to be interagency sort of like cooperation? We want to make sure that we're solving the problems together and that we know what the other hand is doing. And so again, one of the reasons why we brought the, the Ag Experiment Station into the leadership of the Governor's Council on Ag Development and Innovation is to reflect that. Um, cannabis and hemp, two sort of like uh, products which have now become sort of like, certainly cannabis yeah. has become legal, obviously a separate issue, but you know, the growing of it and hemp of course is, yeah. is a big thing here. Talk to us a little bit about both of those because obviously they have their own regulations, they have their own requirements, right. but again, your agency and the other agencies are sort of like, all together dealing with these new products. Cannabis is a Department of Consumer Protection uh, Agency responsibility, and they're rolling out their program and, and setting it up in an amazing fashion. Um, but when we started the hemp program in, in 2019, one of the first bills in Governor Lamont's administration demonstrating how important it was to him to get that across the finish line and get Connecticut farmers access to this new crop. A lot of questions, right? A new crop to the, to the state, relatively new to the nation, um, that's where scientific, vigorous scientific research comes into play. What genetics do you need? What seed should you be buying? How to manage the crop? What pesticides or, or uh, fertilizers or herbicides do you need in order to make sure that you get a crop at the end of the year? Importantly, you know, you've got to test the crop. We call it a hot crop, crop that's over 0.3% THC. We don't do the testing in the Department of Agriculture. So we were able to contract with the Connecticut Ag Experiment Station a local provider and say, send your sample there, they can do the testing. So let's get those connections made so that that farmer now knows the Ag Experiment Station is another resource for them and their farm challenges. So we're talking to Dr. Gudas Malai, who's the director of the uh, tick monitoring uh, program at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. Tell to us about the fact that just recently uh, here in Connecticut and your department uh, received four live exotic ticks which are new to the state. Why is that a concern? We have several reasons to be concerned about having these ticks. The first reason is that uh, these are 
exotic ticks and once they arrive into the United States, we don't know what their fate is going to be. The main concern right now we have is that as our residents travel to international destinations, when they are encountering these ticks, these ticks bite them and there is a potential they might contract diseases that they have not uh, been used to it. And then if they get sick at their international destination, they will have challenges uh, getting proper medical care. And when they come here, similarly, because our physicians may not be familiar with the diseases that these ticks carry, therefore there will be confusion and, and difficulties with regards to treatment. Uh, and the, the other issue that we are uh, also concerned is that once these ticks land here in Connecticut or in the United States, the problem is that because of changes that we are seeing in the climate and, and higher temperature, regardless of where these ticks coming from, they find a suitable habitat and suitable environment for themselves and therefore there is a good potential that they can continue their lives here and start establishing population. In recent years, as we have reported in the past few years, we have seen at least three invasive ticks landed in, in our, at our shores and immediately started establishing populations. Now we have uh, major challenges with, with the diseases they transmit and the, the, the uh, problem that they create both for, for human lives as well as wildlife. So that is, that's another problem that we are uh, very much uh, concerned. The other thing, of course, is how are they getting here into the country? Just talk to us about that. You're talking about international travel. So what happens when people are traveling internationally? So when, when people uh, travel internationally, they usually go to areas that uh, are, are uh, scenery, they, they visit the sanctuary, animal sanctuary, they go for horseback riding, all sorts of outdoor activity. And because of that, they are exposed to ticks and tick bites. And, and then once they get those, those ticks on themselves, quite often those ticks go unnoticed and, and then they, they, they are brought to the United States. This is one way of uh, tick importation, unintentional importation of ticks to Connecticut and to the United States. There are other ways they might be coming through animal importation or, or even agricultural goods and products. Uh, through them, they also arrive here. One of the tick species that we have here, at, uh, you can see on the picture, that is the Asian longhorn tick. Still, we do not know how that tick got into the United States. Now it has become a major problem. So uh, to summarize, there are several means through which these ticks could hitchhike and come and, and become a major problem for us. You said earlier, obviously, if they get into our environment, uh, they're going to cause a problem. And of course, it only takes a few of them to start a new population. It's not just a danger, a public health risk to people. These could also have significant impacts on uh, domestic pets, but also farm animals as well, couldn't they? Correct. Uh, that, that's a very important fact. A good number of these invasive ticks end up being the problem uh, for veterinary health. 
wildlife and, and domesticated animals and animal husbandry. The Asian longhorn tick as an invasive tick is a prime example of that because although we, we don't have any evidence that this tick is able to transmit some of the diseases of human concern here in the United States, even though we have isolated these disease agents from the tick, but that doesn't mean that they are capable of transmitting that. But at the same time, we already know that this tick is a major uh, problem for cattle industry in Midwest and Southeastern United States and because they transmit a, a disease agent called Tayleriosis and that, that's a uh, major limiting factor in addition to transmitting the disease agent because the sheer number of ticks on animals is, is far greater than what uh, we found ourselves because of their exposure, the, the ma body mass and, and all those things and exposed uh, body. Therefore, uh, any animal that we capture, we see hundreds of ticks on them versus a couple of them on ourselves. Therefore, uh, the, the sheer number of this many ticks feeding on that causes anemia and, and all sorts of blood loss and, and health concern, even if they don't carry disease agent. It's not just a disease agent. You're out there, you're monitoring these things, but what can the public do to help? Public uh, have to realize that uh, when, when they are uh, leaving Connecticut and going to, or leaving in the United States, going to international destination, they, they, it is, uh, so they are not escaping from, from ticks here and going to a safe place. They have to realize that anywhere in the world, as far as I know, they go and if they go for outdoor activity they will be exposed to tick bites therefore they have to take the same precautions uh, with regards to tick checks and and other precautions to protect themselves and if they remove the ticks and make sure that they they, they destroy uh, before they land uh, in in the united states at their destination and once they get here and if they discover any tick, they have to be extremely careful not to let them uh, those ticks go to the wild uh, because they they can they have potential to start establishing populations. The best way for them would be to put in a secure container, keep it in a freezer or, or so, and then bring them to us so that we can identify, we can determine what species they are, and then we can further test them to make sure that they are not at risk. Dr. Robert Mara, Associate Agricultural Scientist, Plant Pathology and Ecology at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. Bob, thanks for talking to us. Of course, we've spoken to you in previous podcasts about beech leaf disease. 2019, it was first noticed here in Connecticut. Where are we four years on? Well, now it is found throughout the state, not as prevalently as it is found in the southern four counties, but we do have it in pockets quite extensively in pockets in the four northern counties, Litchfield, Hartford, Wyndham, and Tolland counties. Um, similarly, it is now found throughout Massachusetts. So the last time we talked, it was only in coastal Massachusetts. Now it's all the way to the New York border. Uh, it's found in southern New Hampshire. It's found extensively all the way up into Maine. It's down in Virginia. It's in New Jersey, all of Pennsylvania, nearly all of Pennsylvania. Interestingly, in Ohio, it is still not found south, much further south than where it was first found. 
Talk to us about your DNA fingerprinting system that you were putting together, because this is obviously part of your research and the hopes to obviously, you know, I suppose in some way find uh, more information about this nematode, it's, it, the way it transits. Talk to us about where that is. Right, so unlike banding birds or using other kinds of morphological markers, for small organisms like nematodes and fungi, we don't have those options, but we do have the option of using molecular markers that are neutral, that are going to vary depending on just random events. And the marker system that we use for this nematode is called a fingerprinting system. It's based on something called microsatellites. I probably don't have the time to go into that. But these microsatellites are scattered throughout all of our genomes. We have microsatellites, hundreds of them. 13 of them are used in human forensics. I'm using 17 markers that are scattered throughout the nematode genome. And that allows us to trace pathways of spread of the nematode. Now, I say that we haven't gotten to that point yet. We've been developing the marker system, testing it, and now we're able to deploy it at a much larger scale. It'll also allow us to study how variable this nematode is in North America compared to its putative subspecific sister subspecies in Japan. Uh, so we're going to now see if we can use these markers on the Japanese nematode where the pathosystem clearly is a co-evolved pathosystem, not causing the kinds of extensive spread and decline that we're seeing in this, in this system here on our Native American beach. Let's talk about Japan in 2024, yourself and uh, people from the US Forest Service will be going to Japan, um, specifically as you were just talking about, obviously beech leaf disease. Talk to us about what it is you hope to get out of that trip. Okay. So, in Japan, because the nematode is not really a problem, it's not even a nuisance, there's been very little study done on it. In fact, almost none. And there's no funding to do any studying on it because it's not a problem. On the other hand, a very closely related species, if not the same species that we have here, is of great interest to us here and to our European partners. And so we're going to go to Japan and collect more samples of the nematode. We're actually, I already have some in my lab now. They're all dead, but they're allowing me to look at the DNA sequences of these Japanese isolates to see really how closely related or not they are. When we go to Japan, we're going to collect more samples. We also want to isolate plant tissue so we can study the pathosystem at the interaction level. What is it about the disease as it found in Japan and Japanese leaves, what is it about this disease that allows it to, to remain at low levels, not cause decline, not cause the kind of aborted buds that we see with North America in the North American situation? There is no natural predator uh, that we know of, obviously, for this nematode, but there is some chemical interventions that have proven to be reasonably successful. Talk to us in particular about potassium phosphite. So of the chemicals that have been tested that actually do kill the nematode, the only one that's really effective in an experimental setting is something called fluopyram, which is really a strong nematicide, but has a lot of concerns environmentally because of the fact that if it gets into water systems, which it clearly would, it can cause a lot of toxicity to marine organisms. The polyphosphite is just a dipotassium salt of phosphorus acid. Phosphorus is a no normally naturally occurring compound. This is in the form of a phosphite. 
applied as a soil drench, it gets taken up into the tree. We don't know for sure the mode of action, but it seems as though it is, it is enhancing the tree's ability to withstand the nematode's presence in the buds. And that means that the nematodes are not able to feed off of, it's not able to change the structure of the cells in the buds that allow those nematodes to overwinter and feed. And if you do that, you disrupt the life cycle of this nematode because they need to be able to overwinter and reproduce so that when the, when the buds flush open into leaves in the spring, they then are there to basically start their life cycle all over again. So that is what we suspect is the mode of action of the nematode, we're, I mean of the polyphosphite 30. We're not completely sure yet, but that is what we're suspecting at this point. Any other skip orals that are doing the same thing? Now, just this one uh, tree. The other uh, shrub, whatever this is. <laughs> okay, so there's three of them right next to each other. Two, two of them are doing bad. The other one's doing good. The center one. But the other, the other one that's not doing well is like it's it's kind of died off in the bottom. It lost all its leaves because it's not getting any sun. But this one's getting some sun, and um, it's just, uh, it's weird. The leaves stayed on it, and it's just kind of dead. <laughs> I don't know. How about cucumbers? Should I be cutting? Yeah, that's what I noticed when I first grabbed it. I looked at the Oh, work at That's a sign of, like, an infection. Oh, really? This, oh my god. Black rain. Yeah, oh. So if there's no flowers, there's probably no potatoes. Yeah, that's a wind. Ah. No. Oh, maybe you can try. Don't you think you can Maybe I might get some new potatoes. You might get the little ones, which you are calling new. Yes. Uh, is the area shaded? Is shaded area? Like a full sun? Uh, the one with the flowers is getting full sun, and the ones in the back, not so much. Yeah, just wait. Yeah, just wait maybe two weeks. I think you're again. Yeah. All right. on, on that one, but uh, dig and don't give up on the other one. <laughs> dig more. And what so you gotta dig a little more. Yeah, they're so they're carnivores, right? Ladybugs. Yeah. Oh yeah, they eat aphids. That's why they're good. Oh. Hmm? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And no other, uh, any other. Uh, praying mantis might be fun. Oh, I have yeah. praying mantis in my yard, actually. Yeah. That wouldn't be. Uh, That's another one that eats other other insects. So you and would I be able to keep it in like a little in a little terrarium? Oh yeah, there's uh, there's plenty of hobbyists out there that do that. Oh really? Yeah. Because I have between me and my neighbor, we have a. a I see them every once in a while. Yeah. The praying mantises. They're yeah, you'll see the egg cases sometimes in the fall and winter. Actually, if you cut down a Christmas tree, sometimes you'll find the 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 egg case in the Christmas tree. What butterfly? Any butterflies? And so okay. uh, it's I've estimated that we need to establish an additional 1.6 billion stems of milkweed in what's called the breeding pool.
That's all from this edition of Coast and Country from this year's 113th Plant Science Day. If you want to find out more about the work and services of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station, then visit their website at ct.gov forward slash CAES. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time.